preach a little bit shorter message. We'll see if that can happen. Uh, I'm gonna, we're going to look at the book of Judges. It's been a while. Chapter 10, uh, starting at verse 1. And to introduce my topic, I want you to look at this photo. And I want you to tell me, is this a real photo that actually happened? Or is it fake? And to give you some clues, this actually appeared in National Geographic in 2001. Okay? 2001. All right. So how many say this is a real photo that actually happened? How many say this is fake? Okay. The fake ones are right. That didn't really happen. Thankful for this guy, right? (laughs) (laughs) Now look at this next photo too. Is this one real or fake? This was taken in 2009. When this was out there of the solar eclipse, this is from the International Space Station. Twitter just exploded. Is this a real photo or fake? How many didn't vote? You're in trouble. All right. No, it's, it's a fake one. And I'm not, I don't know all the science behind it, but I, I've been told that if this was a perspective from the space station, that would not be our perspective. We would not be having a, an eclipse at that moment. So that's why this was, this was an artist's rendering of what they thought it may have looked like from the space station, but that was not possible for both us and Earth and them in space to experience a solar eclipse at the same time. Okay? Last one. Is this a real photo? This is a little bit trickier. Does this really happen? How many say yes? It's a football game. Can you tell it's a football game? How many say no, it didn't happen? Well, it did happen, but it's actually been edited by our very own Nicole Dines. Yeah. So it's a real photo that's been tweaked, right? And so all, I only bring up all these photos to show that anymore in our day and age, it's tricky to tell what's real and what's fake. What's real and what's been photoshopped, right? Well, in our passage today in Judges 10, this will be a good way to get back into Judges. I think it starts to introduce this topic again of what is the difference between a real Christian and someone who's a photoshopped Christian, if I can use that language. This is going to be a good reminder sermon for us, and I think this passage, other passages can answer this too, but this one really gets at the core, I think, of what it means to be a real Christian. So if you're able to, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? We're going to look at 18 verses. It says, after the time of Abimelech, so he was the king or the judge and the leader in chapter 9, a man of Issachar named Tola, son of Pua, the son of Dodo, which can you imagine your grandpa was a Dodo, right? <laughs> he rose to save Israel. He lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. He led Israel 23 years, then he died and was buried in Shamir. He was followed by Jair of Gilead, who led Israel 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys. They controlled 30 towns in Gilead, which to this day are called Havath Jair. When Jair died, he was buried in Canaan. So before I keep going real quick, stay standing. These are known, these two judges are, are known more as minor judges, we call them, but they had a major role. Because in chapter 9, when Abimelech was ruling, he was the son of Gideon. Remember, when he came to power, he killed 69 of his half-brothers so that he could seize the throne. He destroyed many of his fellow countrymen and Israelites. I mean, his rule was horrible. And by the end of chapter 9, a woman dropped a millstone from a tower on Abimelech and killed him. And then we get to chapter 10, and despite all of that horrible stuff, God raises up two judges, Tola and Jair, to save Israel from themselves. I mean, isn't it great that Abimelechs don't have the last word in God's economy? God's grace has the last word. He is a God who's interested in saving his people, no matter what they're going through. 
Let's keep going, verse 6. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became what? Angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, so double oppression, who that year shattered and they crushed them. For 18 long years, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan River in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan River to fight against Judah and Benjamin and Ephraim. Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, we have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, when the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Mayanites, who may be the Midianites that Gideon conquered, when they oppressed you and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. But the Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. When the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, whoever will take the lead in attacking the Ammonites will be head over all who live in Gilead. And you may be seated. We'll stop right there. So I mentioned what's the difference between a real Christian and one who's a photoshopped Christian? You could probably answer that many ways, but the way I'm going to answer it today from our text is this. A real Christian understands what sin really is. They understand what repentance really is, and they do it. And they also understand who God really is. So they understand what sin really is, what repentance really is, and who God really is. So let's talk about sin. And by the way, I know as a pastor, sometimes as churches, we are known for over-talking about sin. But, but if somebody were to ask me, why do I believe Christianity is true? You know, we could talk about a lot of things like, you know, the case that the resurrection actually happened or that miracles can happen or that the Bible is coherent. But you know what I might talk about today? I might, might start by talking about that the Bible is really accurate in how it talks about sin. No other document, no other source in all of creation pinpoints the human heart and our problems like the Bible does. The Bible is so accurate in its problem, what's wrong with us and what's wrong with the world, that I think if you understand that, I think the rest of it locks into place. So, so let me give you a couple definitions of sin that we see in our text. And the first one is in verse 6. It says, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the first definition of sin is Thinking, saying, and doing anything that is evil in God's eyes. It is thinking and saying and doing anything that is evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, if you were to say that a slightly different way, and the book of Judges will, it is doing that which is right in our own eyes. That's what sin is. So at the core of our heart, we want to be in charge. We want to call the shots. We want to define what is right and wrong. And this is what was Adam and Eve's problem in the garden. We think we know best, but this gets us into all sorts of problems. And I really like this definition that 
the book of Judges brings up with sin because it goes to show that sin is never an abstract thing. It's not just breaking a law, but we are sinning against God. It is a sin in his eyes. Let me go on to the second definition of sin. And if you look at verse 6 again, it mentions this. It says, they serve the Baals and the Asterisks, that's the gods and goddesses, pagan gods and goddesses, and the gods of Aram, which is northwest of them, the gods of Sidon, which is north of them, the gods of Moab and the gods of the Ammonites, which is east of Israel, and the gods of the Philistines, which is south of them. So in every single way, and by the way, the west is, of course, the sea. There's no nations there. Every single way around them, they are incorporating all the gods and goddesses around them. So this is another definition of sin. Real sin is worshiping and serving other gods. It is idolatry. Say that with me. Idolatry. Which is the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. But real sin is breaking both of those. Having other gods before him. And I sometimes think that we look at Israel and we think, you know what? They had a lot of problems, didn't they? There's no way we're like this. But guess what? We are just like this. Because do you know why Israel was looking to other gods? They wanted a good family life. They wanted their crops and economy to go well. They wanted God to bless them so they had many children. I mean, how many of you want your life to go well? It's okay to raise your hand. This isn't a trick question. How many of you want to have a healthy family? How many of you want to make enough money to survive and thrive and save and retire. Yes. Well, they were looking, some of you are like, "Woo!" I mean, they were looking to other gods and God, the gods of the nations around them to satisfy this answer rather than the God. And we have this same issue. Because here's the tricky thing about idols, idol worship. An idol in 2020 now can be anything that we love more than God. Anything we look to for our hope and joy and security more than God. Anything we look to for our sense of satisfaction and fulfillment and significance more than God. So here, you can shout some of these out, but here in America, I've had you do this before, what are some idols that we elevate in our culture that we think will give us that answer? What are they? Money. Money, yep, and possessions, right? If we just have enough. What else? Sports. Sports, yep. Success, yep, career achievement, right? If we just make it ahead. I mean, this is the tricky thing about idols. Anything or anyone rather than God can get in the way of him. Even good things like a spouse and kids, even though we're called to love them, of course, if they take the place of God, that can be an idol. Even a good cause, you know, in our culture, even ministry, if that is my number one love more than God, if preaching a sermon and doing well in that is more important to me than God and what he says about me, it's become an idol for me, hasn't it? Even a political cause can be an idol. Anything and anyone can be an idol. And this is the the tricky thing about idols. Even good things, if they become ultimate things, can rule our life. So it's worth asking some really good questions. I, I, I wish we had a lot of time just to think about these questions. But ask yourself this question when it comes to figuring out what are your idols. Here's the question. What if I lost in my life would absolutely devastate me, maybe even to the point of wanting to kill myself? What if I lost would make me feel like I have no identity or center or soul left? Well, chances are, if it's not the Lord, then it's an idol. 
You know, you think about really good athletes, professional athletes. There have been many people who've studied them. When they have a career-ending injury or they retire, have you ever noticed how professional athletes can really struggle in life? And you don't blame them because that was their means of livelihood. That's what they did. That's normal. But some professional athletes go on to do amazing things. Some really struggle the rest of their life. And those that struggle, I think, if they're honest, it's because their career, their success, their achievement, that was their idol. That's what they lived for. Another question you can ask yourself is the fill in the blank question. If only I had blank, then life would be meaningful. Then life would be satisfactory. Then life would be fulfilling. If only I had blank, then life would be good. But here's the thing about idols. If you look at verses 7 and 8, this really illustrates it. Idols are crushing and they are enslaving. God is angry with them, so he sells them into the Philistines in the Ammonites' hands, and it says that year they shattered and crushed them. I mean, that's, that's God's way of showing that if we serve idols, they will shatter us, they will depress us, they will crush us too. And even if you find what you're looking for, it's never ultimately what you thought it was. There was an article I found, this was written in 1990 by a woman who studied famous celebrities who made it. And here's what she said. She said, I pity celebrities. No, I do. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings. But now their wrath is awful. Because more than any of us, they wanted fame. So they worked and they pushed. And the morning after they became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing they were looking for, that, that thing that they thought was going to make everything okay and make their lives bearable and give them fulfillment and happiness, it actually happened, and then nothing changed. They woke up the next morning still the same person. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. So what is driving you at the core of your being? Because sin is not just doing bad stuff, but sin is, but sin is, is realizing that it is idolatry deep in our hearts that we want something more than God that is driving our behavior to, to offend God, to break his law. A real Christian understands this deep definition of sin, that sin is actually idol worship. Let's go to the second one. It flows right nicely into the next one. A real Christian also understands what real repentance is. And we commonly define repentance as what? Change. You change from following sin, you change directions, 180, and you follow the Lord. You change from following your idols, and you change now to worshiping the Lord. It's a good definition. But let me go a little bit deeper. If you look at verses 10 and following, you start to see what real repentance is. It says, then the Israelites cried out to the Lord. We've sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. And then to paraphrase a little bit, the Lord gives a sermon. You know, I saved you. I helped you. And then on the next slide, on the next slide in verse 13, but you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Now, did that surprise anyone when we read that? I know it surprised me the first time I read it. Verse 14, go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. So in verse 15, the Israelites go a little bit deeper in their repentance. But the Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think is best. But please, it's kind of funny, rescue us now. But then verse 16, then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. So Israel is starting to see what real repentance is. And so this takes me to a definition of what real repentance is. Real repentance, or RR, is not just repenting of your behavior, what you say or think or do. 
but it is repenting of the idols of our heart that drive our behavior. So it's not just repenting and acknowledging that you've cheated, but you're telling God, I cheated because I had this idol where I needed money or I needed fame or I didn't want to look bad. That's why I did that. It's repenting of that. It's repenting of not just looking at pornography, but it's saying, you know what, Lord, I was looking at pornography because I have an idol of sexuality or beauty, thinking I can find it in that rather than the Lord. It's going deeper into our heart to say, what is driving us to do and make the decisions or not make the decisions that we are? If you keep thinking about what real repentance is, a couple more. RR, real repentance, is sorry, not just for the consequences of sin, but because we've actually offended a personal, holy God. It's sorry not just for the consequences of sin or getting caught, but that we've offended God. I mean, as you think about your life, have you ever been sorry for getting caught in something, really? You're sorry not because you did the wrong thing, but because you got caught. (laughs) I see this sometimes in my little children. But it's just a reflection of all of us. (laughs) Real repentance is sorry not just for consequences, but for offending the King of kings and Lord of lords. One way to know if you're really sorry or not, have you ever... um, Have you ever prayed a prayer like this? Like, Lord, I will follow you or I will do this if you give me or do blank. You ever prayed a prayer like that? Confession's good for the soul. You can raise your hand. (laughs) Of course you have. (laughs) When we pray a prayer like that, we don't want God ultimately, do we? We want X, whatever it is. God, if you give me X, then I'll really serve you. God, if you give me X, then I'll really get baptized. God, if you give me X, then I'll really whatever. (laughs) You know, a real Christian, they start to understand that they have God, and that's more than enough. Yes, you get a lot of benefits and blessings in following God, but if you only had God, he's the giver of life. That's more than enough, isn't it? Do you know what reveals your heart, really the idols of your heart, more than anything else? When you and I go through what? Suffering and hard times. That's what reveals what our hearts are really about. When you and I go through suffering, we under, stuff just comes spewing out of our mouth, of our behavior. That's what really shows us what we're really valuing in that moment. We're either valuing God because he's more than enough, or we were valuing something else, an idol that had gotten in the way. Let me go to the last part. Real repentance accepts God's rescue, and it also accepts his what? His rule in your life. And it doesn't just accept it. It delights in it. Because you start to realize that if you're running life the way you want to run life, if I'm doing that too, boy, that's a horrible thing. That's no way to live. (laughs) Real repentance accepts God's rule in our life, gladly. And I think that if we actually do this, we will find that he's the kind of God that can forgive us and also fulfill us. Our idols can't do that. Let me go to the last point. I know I'm over time a little bit. A real Christian understands not only what sin really is and what repentance really is, but also the real character of God. Did you notice in this passage some of God's characteristics? There's two big ones that stand out, and they seem to be at odds. The first one that stands out to me is God's holiness and his discipline. Because in verse 7, in verse 7 it says, he became angry with them. 
And he sold them out of discipline into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites. And then in verses 11 to 14, God was reluctant. I think he was doing this on purpose, of course, because he wanted them to really repent. He said, you know, I've saved you before. You know, it didn't make any difference because you went back to your idols. For some of us, this side of God can be a little alarming. We don't always like the wrathful part against sin and the righteousness of God and the perfection of God, the holiness of God. But a real Christian understands it and actually appreciates it and, dare I say, even delights in the beauty and holiness of God. Because a real Christian understands that when God disciplines, he's not doing it because he hates us. He's doing it, why? Because he loves us. I mean, if you've ever had to discipline a little kid, whether it's yours or you're babysitting, you may be doing it out of wrath and anger in the moment, but you're ultimately doing it, I think, why? Because you love them, at least deep down. <laughs> if you ever had to discipline somebody on your team as a coach or if you're a boss, you do it hopefully because, not because you hate them, but because you want to see them change. Or maybe you've had to intervene in someone's life that was struggling with drugs and alcohol. You don't intervene because you hate them. You hate the drugs. You hate the addiction. You hate the alcohol. But you love the person because you want to see them change. And I think this is what God is doing here and often in our lives. When he intervenes out of his holiness and discipline and in his righteous wrath, he does it appropriately. You know, our God isn't a moody God. He doesn't just wake up and he's angry, you know, like some of us. He's always appropriately angry. He's slow to anger. So that's one aspect of God we see here. But the other aspect of God we see is God's love and his grace and his mercy. We see that, that he raises up Tola, remember the grandson of Dodo, that guy? And Jair, I mean, God is so gracious that he raises up judges to save them, even though they didn't deserve it. And then in verse, six, verse 16, this is what really caught me this week. It says, and he, God, could bear Israel's misery no longer. Isn't that amazing about God? He could bear their misery no longer. And so what's interesting about this is, as I was reading and processing this too, I still wonder, in fact, I doubt, if the Israelites really repented deeply. Because yes, it says they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord, but, but if you look at this language closely, it says he could bear Israel's misery, not their sin, but misery no longer. One preacher says it like this, verse 16 itself does not tie God's compassion to their repentance, but to her misery or suffering. It's as if he cannot stand <coughs> to see his people, even his sinful people, crushed. In all of their affliction, God, too, is afflicted. You know, if you read the next two verses, I don't have them on screen, but the Israelites are going to be in trouble. But instead of looking to God, they're already looking for a human leader, a human judge, to come in and save them. It's like they haven't learned their lesson. <laughs> Yet our God is so gracious, he's willing to intervene and relieve them. So if you look at those two attributes of God on screen, his holiness and his love, a lot of people think those are at odds, you know. How can God be both? And some people, if you're a little more liberal in your theology, you say, well, God is a God of love. He'll, he'll accept you. It's like he's a big grandpa with a white beard. He's just going to accept you and loves you. And then some people who are a little more conservative may say, no, God is a God of justice and holiness. You've got to act the right way. Well, the answer is God's both. And you know where we see both of those attributes displayed? At the cross, right? At the cross, you see that intersection of God's justice and holiness and his love and mercy. 
God is so holy that he had to punish sin with the death of the eternal son of God. And yet God is so loving that he demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so a real Christian understands not only sin and repentance, but the amazing character of God, that God is both, and a real Christian delights in both. In fact, you are starting to get this when you realize that you are humbled by your sin, but you're also uplifted because of God's grace. You kind of feel both forces at the same time. And you know what happens? I'm not a physics expert, but we have someone on staff who might be. Uh, You know what happens when you have two forces pulling on you in equal but opposite directions? I think that's an object at rest. God's holiness, God's grace pushing on you, you are at rest at the same time. A real Christian feels that rest, and they delight in this aspect of God. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this day. Lord, we celebrate uh, the new life that Julie is experiencing in her ministry. We celebrate with Drew and Holly the changes and what you've done in their life and are continuing to do. Lord, we celebrate this passage that you are a God of holiness. You don't tolerate sin, but you're slow to anger. Lord, you will punish because of your appropriate righteous wrath. And yet we celebrate your grace and mercy that you had mercy and grace on sinners like us because Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his stripes, by his wounds, we are healed fully. Father, I pray that as we think about this year, you would help us to understand the idols of our heart and realize that Jesus is always better. He will actually forgive us and he will fulfill us. Father, help us to do some honest soul searching today by the power of the Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before you're dismissed, just a reminder that we have a great resource out there called the Book Nook. We have some great devotionals that can help you day by day fight the idols of your heart. I encourage you to stop by and check some of these out, all right? Well, thanks for coming. You're dismissed.